You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. If the 19th century was dominated by Europe and the 20th by North America, there is a strong argument that the current century will belong to Asia. On current trends, Asia will account for more than half of global GDP by around 2040. And while China will remain an engine of growth, on current trends, the rest of Asia will contribute just as much. As we'll hear, the region as a whole is also becoming more integrated. Whether you look at the flow of goods, finance, people, and even culture. To discuss the future of Asia, I sat down in Seoul with Oliver Tonby, who is McKinsey's Asia chairman, Wonsik Choi, who leads the firm's career practice, and also we were joined on the line by Jonathan Wetzel. Jonathan is a leader of the McKinsey Global Institute. He's based in Shanghai. So, uh, Oliver, Wonsik, uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for Thank inviting you. us. Thank you for having us. Uh, pleasure to be here. So, a phrase that I think we're hearing increasingly in the media is this concept of the Asian century. This idea that we are moving into a period where Asia is, is going to be maybe the dominant region economically, but maybe in other ways too. I mean, Oliver, let's start with you. What do you think? See, I, I do think there is something to that. Let's talk about GDP. Asia is going to be home to 50% of the world GDP by 20. 2040. Uh, if you look at where is the growth in consumption coming, the, the growth in the consuming class, it's in Asia. You look at technology. In April, the world had uh, order of magnitude 300 unicorns, 119 of which are Asian. Uh, if you look at VC funding, 40% of VC funding globally is Asian. If you look at uh, some of the world's best performing companies, they happen to be Asian. So, you know, you can look at it many, many different ways, but absolutely, um, there is something to this Asian century, or as we say, you know, the question is no longer is Asia going to rise, the question is how is Asia going to lead? Yeah. Would you agree with that once? Absolutely. Um, I, I think the Asia century is not only inevitable, but it's already here. Last 50 years, um, seven countries in the world uh, have grown at 3.5% or more in terms of GDP per capita. All of those countries are Asian countries. Last 20 uh, years, uh, 11 countries have uh, grown at or above 5% GDP per capita. Ha more than half of them are Asian, Asian countries. So it's already here. And um, as Oliver said, half of the world in terms of GDP is going to be Asian. Half of the global middle class will be Asian. 40% of the global consumption will be Asian. So in, in, in a simply put manner, in 20 years, half of the world will be Asia. Well, just to build on that, I think that the uh, Asian century is, is of course, uh, in sort of an indisputable reality. And uh, the reason people might only dispute it is that they've been essentially living in the past. 
And uh, it, it has arrived on us relatively quickly in terms of how fast uh, everything flipped. So what does the implication of this being an Asian century in terms of the center of commerce, of consumption, of uh, capital and technology, what does that leave for the rest of the world? Uh, notably, of course, for Europe and, uh, and North America, but as importantly for uh, emerging markets. And uh, that is a great question because it, it leads us smack into this relationship between Asia and the world. If we look at issues that are globally relevant, such as so the environment or, for that matter, security issues or health issues, Asia and the world um, must uh, collaborate more closely uh, than they have in the past if we are going to address these issues. And we, Asia will be at the center, but it will take a global effort. But if we go into, obviously, economic issues where there has been more conflicts recently, you know, the, there may well be a need to rethink some of the arrangements which were essentially created in earlier eras, uh, whether they're about uh, how to manage currencies. Uh, obviously, intellectual property is a big flashpoint. I, th I think the interesting thing in the light of that answer, though, is the new swallow out of Asia at the moment is, yeah. is anything but positive. We've got... Uh, a trade war going on effectively between the US and China. There are also a lot of tensions between Korea and Japan. There are issues in Hong Kong. How would you answer that one, sec? My personal view is uh, that the biggest uncertainties and risks uh, in the way of economic growth, ironically, are not economic. I think these are geopolitical and political uncertainties and risks. Um, I think the good news, uh, from my point of view, is that it's not new to Asia. We've dealt with these issues before. Um, and what I would like to urge the business leaders and the policymakers and the broader constituents out there is to not lose the win-win perspective. Asia is becoming much more intertwined in terms of uh, economic flows and activities. It is impossible for China, for example, to grow on its own. Same thing is the case for Korea, Japan. Everything value chain-wise becoming much more intertwined. And it's a very complex thing to unravel. I'm gonna just add to that. Listen, it's very clear. You know, these are big worries. They are top of mind for CEOs globally. Um, so absolutely, you know, people are worried. We, we are worried and we see these developments. Having said that, you know, the long term is quite clear. Some of these trends are long term and they're kind of to the point of being unstoppable, you know, because it's driven in the rise of, of, of demographics and, and, and rising income, because they're driven uh, by technology innovation. And by the way, technology that is for the most part already present uh, in the region, you know, there's kind of something here that is inevitable. 20 years ago, Asia had 2.2 uh, billion people in working age population. In 20 years, that number will increase to 3.4 billion people. That's a whopping 1 billion addition uh, to the labor force. But we also see, I think it's not to be underestimated, social progress, what do I mean? You know, education uh, levels going up. And by the way, today, you know, almost 50%, a little bit less than 50% of the world's international students are Asian. Uh, but basic education is going up. Um, we see the rights for women by law and what have you. So 
all the social progress in all of the countries uh, now it is not where it needs to be but it is increasing and that's one of the fundamental drivers here and that's a fundamental driver of productivity though isn't it because a healthy person an educated person an included person is much more likely to be an economically productive person exactly i think an interesting point is sitting from where i sit in the us the news flow is overwhelmingly dominated by china so to what extent is the future of Asia story a China story? So China is, of course, an incredibly important part of the story, but it is not only China. Uh, we actually talk about four different Asias. We talk about China, as you mentioned, for obvious reasons, given its size, given its stage of developments, you know, the technology, technological developments and, and, and what have you that are happening in China. But we also talk about advanced uh, Asia. Uh, you know, the Japans, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore's, Korea's, uh, which are highly advanced countries that are already well developed. Uh, we talk about uh, emerging uh, Asia, uh, call it ASEAN uh, Plus. And then we talk about Indian frontier Asia. And the latter two have large populations, they are growing, that's where we see the growth, especially in the middle class populations. We see rapid urbanizations and what have you. The interplay between these four Asias is what makes this really interesting. Well, speaking from China, where I've been living, of course, for the last 30-odd years, I mean, everything looks a bit Chinese, uh, but uh, we believe in this, as Oliver said, the, the four Asias, and so that this is a, an increasingly interconnected region. I can't remember which uh, long-gone English uh, statesman uh, made the comment that uh, Asia is a, uh, is a geographic expression, uh, not an economic or cultural identity. Uh, and that was true 200 years ago, where you know it was and Asia is uh, physically still just a collection of islands. Um, but what we're starting to see now is Asia as an actual Asia, uh, where there are increasing linkages between the regions of Asia, both economically and, for that matter, socially and environmentally and uh, physically even. So that that is the context for it all, uh, whether we're talking about manufacturing value chains that span multiple countries or innovation, where finance unites the region across a whole bunch of multi-local solutions, or it's tourism, where you know there are flows to and from pretty much every Asian country, albeit with a substantial China. China focus or a China component to it, but with a increasingly growing non-Chinese components and and, a, and a flows which go, as I said, regionally, not just from to and from China. So yeah, I would say it's an important side, but uh, trying to separate Asia into a China and a non-China would sort of miss the point of Asia, Asia as a region and Asia as an interconnected network. One of the, the big takeaways for me reading the latest McKinsey research is this figure that 60% of Asia trade now is intra-regional trade, a little bit lower than the European Union, or a little bit lower than Europe, but actually higher than North America, higher exactly. than Latin America, higher than any other region. So there's no question that Asia is becoming more Asian. Um, and that's driven by um, uh, several things. The different Asias that we talked about, goods flowing from you know, the advanced Asia into other parts and, and, and what have you. So that's one measure of the interconnectedness. But we also see other, other things. We see FDI, 50% of FDI is intra-regional, meaning the investments that are now going into the Indonesias and Malaysias and India are coming 50% of, of that is from within Asia. That is true whether it's for M&A purposes or if it's for greenfield investment purposes. Uh, we see 
Also, uh, at, at a more company-by-company company level, we see companies investing in new countries, whether it's in the Philippines or it's in Vietnam. Uh, this is being accelerated by the ongoing ten trade tensions, for sure, but there's also a long-term development here. So long story short, absolutely more and more interconnectedness. Yes, there are some interesting patterns. Of course, on the manufacturing and supply chain, we have seen you know, this big question of what will happen to Chinese manufacturing. And so where does that go? And uh, over the last 10 years, we've started to finally see Chinese you know, low-end value-added manufacturing migrate, uh, migrate internally, but also migrate to the region and throughout the region, notably to places which have a port, uh, which have reliable uh, local infrastructure, which are able to provide a low-cost, labor-intensive manufacturing option. Uh, and uh, that's a finite number of places. And so some of the you know, countries and regions that have picked up a share have been, of course, Vietnam. And so uh, we look at a, a Haiphong, for example, as, a, as an up-and-coming medium-sized city that has really picked up uh, a lot of share recently. And there are others, of course. If one goes to the Dhaka airport in uh, Bangladesh, we see the same kinds of advertisements that we saw in China 25 years ago for in Guangzhou for zipper manufacturers for the textile industry. And with investments and, and manufacturing technologies that are regional, some things, machines from everywhere, from Japan or Korea or China, now operated by people in Bangladesh or Cambodia or Vietnam. So that's manufacturing. On the technology side, I think what we start to observe, and I'll link this a bit to finance, is that you know it is very multi-local in the sense that we have multiple ride-sharing you know uh, technologies and, and networks and multiple internet search uh, engines you know reflecting the different regional characteristics. But what is common across many of these countries is the finance uh, sources in the sense that there is a regional venture capital, there's a regional private equity, there's a regional uh, multilateral development bank network, and the flows there are interesting in that uh, Japan and Korea as the if you will, aging societies. And so they are increasingly taking a leading role in the funding of technology and by extension by infrastructure, digital infrastructure, physical infrastructure, and that the surpluses that are being generated uh, by the aging societies are now increasingly being deployed across emerging Asia. And then finally, culture and tourism. Well, that one I think it is fair to say that China is really driving the bus there, and that as we look at the, the flows that we see as massive outgrowth and outbound tourism from China, uh, notably to Bangkok, <laughs> Thailand, where I understand Chinese tourists account for upwards of 9 or 10% of all Thai retail consumption, which is pretty amazing. As an executive from outside the region, does it even make sense to think about an Asia strategy, or how do you advise uh, executives from outside the region to even conceptualize an Asia strategy in the light of such a big and diverse region? That is a tough question. You know, on the one hand, those of us that are, that are based here and live here, we, we know that there's not one Asia. So you're absolutely right. At some stage, it does not make sense to think about, you know, one Asia. You know, having said that, you do need to think about what is my supply chain, for example, across Asia. That is changing rapidly um, for multiple reasons that we've talked about. It's changing because the respective economies are becoming more advanced. You know, this labor arbitrage is no longer the reason to start building a plant here or there. That's actually less than less than 20% of today's trade is actually now based on that low cost uh, labor arbitrage. 
But there is an Asian question around how do I think about my supply chain? And it's become even more important now recently. We've seen some of the trade disputes, uh, trade tensions, uh, not only US and China and Brexit, but also Japan, Korea and what have you. So this whole topic is now much more live and there is an Asian question in around that. So how do I think about my Asia footprint in terms of manufacturing, supply, operating model is a, is a big deal. Ab absolutely. So that, that's one. I think there is a question around um, Asia in terms of if I'm an MNC, where do I base my headquarter? And I think, you know, we need to move away from the single Asian headquarter doesn't work. It's multiple. Uh, where do I place my sources of, of innovation, my R&D, uh, but innovation more broadly, innovation in business models, innovation in products that we're selling. So I think there are Asian angles, uh, but going back to your starting point, you know, there, there is no one Asia. This is a complicated question. And key to me is whether that understanding is granular enough. For example, beyond the Shenzhen's, the Shanghai's, what are the next up and coming uh, cities uh, that will propel economic growth? And what are you doing about those if you're a consumer retail, uh, let's say, company, or even a global company that wants to establish a manufacturing basis? Did you know that um, Haiphong in uh, Vietnam and uh, Fukashi in Indonesia, for example, are two of many cities in Asia that are rapidly becoming production centers uh, for electronic products? Uh, if you're in the sector, maybe you do. Uh, if you're not, maybe that's a level of granularity that uh, is worth educating yourself and the rest of the management team as well as the organization so that you know Asia properly and how rapidly it is evolving versus the picture that you may have uh, as of today. Just say a little bit more about the, uh, the corporate scene across Asia. As you mentioned, it has some unique characteristics. I think that the uh, Asian corporate ecosystem is its own thing. It's clearly got its own drivers and its own history, one of which has been, in most environments, a relatively outsized role for multinational corporations. And that uh, if we look at China, for example, multinationals have almost twice the share of, of the market in China as they do in the United States. So from a, you know, who's, who's on the playing field, actually, there's a lot more multinational presence in, in Asia than in other parts of the world. That's one difference. The second characteristic of the Asian context is that it is a high growth context. And uh, of course, it's been higher growth uh, macroeconomically, but it's also microeconomically higher growth. And so we see companies growing faster in their top lines and uh, to some extent in their bottom lines, though not always, uh, across the region. Uh, that shapes the characteristic of competition. It's a much more volatile uh, world. And uh, it's also, to Asia's benefit, a more dynamic one, especially as we look at smaller, medium-sized enterprises becoming you know, medium to large-sized enterprises. That's really what shapes industries. And we've seen more of that. And we've seen more of that competitive middle market in Asia than we have in more mature environments in the last couple of decades. So that's a second factor. So we look at what is something called the power curve, which are what are the companies that are delivering economic profit? And in the top 10% globally, more than half of those happen to be Asian. These are the top 10% performing companies globally. More than half of them happen to be Asian. And that's performing in terms of economic value added, right? Economic value added over the cost of capital, yes, to get specific yeah. here. Yeah. Now, that's interesting. So there are companies here that are making significant amounts of economic profit. And by the way, at the other end of the spectrum, there's also quite a number that are destroying value. Let's be clear. 
but what's interesting to see that it's a much more dynamic population. So the probability of staying in that top 10% is actually lower in Asia. You know, there's more change in who are the winners. That comes for a variety of reasons. It comes from just the overall growth in the economies, which basically gives rise to new companies growing more quickly. Uh, you see the rate of innovation of technology that basically allows new business models, new products. And, and I think the challenge for many Asian companies is not about the ambition to get big, not in size, but also in profits, but the way to get there. One of the things that many Asian companies need to overcome in that disruptive journey is changes in their approach to governing their businesses. Many of the Asian companies that have been successful have been growing through a lot of what I call as top-down entrepreneurship. It will still be relevant and important going forward, but many of the companies will have to shift their orientation in terms of their approach to innovation, much more bottom-up, voluntary, fast to fail. A lot of what companies are trying to adopt in terms of a digital way of working, agile way of working, these will be foundational to their transformation going forward. Just come back to and spend a little bit more time on just innovation happening in Asia, because I think this is a very important point. Now, you know, we have heard a lot about you know, the Chinese ecosystem players and their rise, and I think that's a fantastic growth story, and they will continue to, to be very important. But I think it's not only that. I think it's important that we're aware of. If you look at the VC funding happening today in fields such as virtual reality, autonomous vehicles, 3D printing, robotics, drones, AI, there is more VC funding into those happening in Asia than there is in the rest of the world. <laughs> this is a very large part. So, you know, the VC funding is happening. If you look at some of the companies that are coming and growing out of this in diverse sectors, you look at, it's now either the world's largest or second largest hotel operators, Oyo, which is an Indian company. We can talk about Grab, Gojek, Tokopedia that come out of ASEAN. And we can talk about Ola cabs and, and what have you. There's just a proliferation of companies that are driven by technology and that are coming out of Asia. If I could go on from there for just a second. One of the characteristics of, of Asian innovation, I think, is that it is multilocal uh, in that while there is a sharing of the basic ideas and the standards, if you will, as well as the finance. But the actual marketplace Asians are developing much of their technology for is an Asian marketplace. And so it's actually quite natural to see as areas and regions within Asia have a bigger local marketplace and they combine that with a source of human capital and, yes, a willing and large customer such as the government or a large employer, that they can and do develop their own local innovative capacities. And that's what we mean by multilocal is that it's a cluster development. So that's what we are going to see across Asia is a set of innovative clusters sharing a global technology standards. We don't think that, for example, there will be magically another, you know, 7G or 10G that sort of miraculously appears. But China, Asia understands the value of having a common standard, but a local development capacity to develop and to innovate against that standard, to meet that standard's requirements. That's what we are going to see. So we talked a little bit earlier about some of the, the geopolitical tensions, uh, the trade tensions that are going on uh, at the moment that are in the news. 
If you think about the, the other things that could go wrong with the Asian century that either could knock it off track or the big challenges that need to be overcome, what are the sort of things that spring to mind? There are several, and these are important. Uh, let me just mention a few. Uh, number one, uneven or unequal distribution. We now see countries, sectors, parts of the population that haves and the have-nots. This is important. So if we have increasing differences in, uh, in an inequality, that could derail. And so how countries deal with rising inequality is absolutely critical. And we do see, by the way, rising Gini coefficients in many, many countries. So this is one thing to point out. Second one is sustainability, in particular environmental sustainability. We have some of the most polluted cities to the point of them being, you know, you cannot be outdoors in several of these cities uh, for families. This is a huge problem. So how cities and countries go about dealing with environmental issues, climate change, unhealthy cities, plastics and water, 8 million tons of plastic put into a, to rivers every single year. Most of them are in, in Asia. So environmental sustainability is a huge topic, climate change uh, included there. And then the third one I would point out is if some of these tensions that we currently do see that are trade tensions, geopolitical tensions evolve into something more. That would obviously be a huge problem. One second, I think you'd add? I think economic inequality, among many other challenges uh, that I also recognize, is the most concerning potentially for me. And uh, that is being accelerated, aggravated by the digital disruptive technological innovations that are happening, which for the most part is creating big benefits uh, for the humankind and also global economy. And by the way, that issue uh, with respect to technology-driven uh, inequality is not a new issue or is not a, a unique issue for Asia. It's a global issue to address uh, together. And part of the solution at least will involve redeployment of the labor force that's actually out there. And it's not a trivial task. And I think that the Asian context in many ways is going to be the testing ground for defining a new set of arrangements, if for no other reason than Asia is ground zero when it comes to disruption. There's no country on the planet or no region on the planet that's had more disruption uh, in the last 30 or 40 years than Asia. And of course, China has been at the center of a lot of that, but not exclusively. And by no means in going forward, I mean, that we're going to see as, you know, exclusively that the, all of Asia is going to be experiencing vast amounts of change. And in the change lies the potential for developing a solution. It is often the case that we develop solutions because we must, uh, not because we want to, but because they're necessary. And how do cities of Asia help uh, absorb the next 300 million, 400 million uh, urban arrivals? And uh, what will be the, the social impacts of a global distribution of AI uh, across the economies? I mean, these are issues that will affect Asian countries very quickly and already are, and they will be at the forefront of developing the new sets of solutions and arrangements for them. Sad to say, I think we are out of time for today, but thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. Uh, Oliver, Jonathan and Wonsik. Thank you, Simon. Really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, Simon. Thank you for making the time. Likewise. Thank you. You should consider moving to Asia to be in the center of the action going forward. <laughs> and thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about this topic, please do subscribe to our brand new Future of Asia podcast series, which you can find in all the same places that you find the McKinsey podcast. Alternatively, visit us at mckinsey.com or download the splendid McKinsey Insights app.
You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.